Now, due to your background and whatnot, I assume that you already have a bit of foundation uh, in the teaching of the Buddha, and that most likely the kind of things that you've learned so far are the kind of things that um, most uh, Khmer people would know. Yeah. Which would be kind of like uh, the surface level or the ordinary level of the teachings of the Buddha that has in fact become uh, Buddha Sasana. I think that same word, I, used, I said it the Thai way, but I think that same word is used in the Khmer language. Um, for the Buddhist religion. Uh, and so we'll go ahead and, and speak about it though, but at a different level. Rather than the ordinary level or the surface level of Buddhism or the very beginning kind of levels, uh, the way that uh, I've been, uh, let us say, coached into or instructed to teach is to go right into the noble immediately to leave the surface level and the religion behind and go right to the actual teachings of the Buddha that's liberated. Okay. And so right from the very beginning, we have to know what is the whole point of the liberation? What is enlightenment? What is Nibbana? So that we have a handle on actually what we're talking about. Now, in the beginning of, um, there, there is a sutta number 22 um, that is, I think, the simile of the snake, where uh, the Buddha says that both formerly and now, I teach only one thing. Only one thing does the Buddha teach. And yet, look how big Buddhism is. Wow, it's all over the place. But the Buddha only teaches this one thing, and that is Dukkha Dukkha Naroda. Perhaps you've heard that word phrase before. Dukkha Dukkha Naroda. And so basically what that means then, if that's his entire teaching, then, and we understand that um, Dukkha means dissatisfaction, dis-ease, um, disassociation, displeasure, um, then the word dukkha naroda means just the opposite of that, which means freedom from dukkha. And if dukkha is satisfying, uh, or let us say unsatisfying, dissatisfying, then being satisfied would be out of it. That would be the goal, is to become satisfied. If, in fact, dukkha means disassociation, then that means that the freedom that we will have is by being able to freely associate. And if the, uh, the word actually means suffering, then the lack of suffering would be some sort of pleasure. And so this is the way that we're looking about it. But another way of thinking of dukkha is, is that uh, things get hot. And so when things are not hot, they're cool. And that's what the word Nibbana actually means. It means cool. But it also means freedom from displeasure. 
it means freedom from uh, unsatisfactoriness. So we need to practice a way of getting ourselves out of that uh, dukkha into a state that is free from dukkha. And that's basically the whole teachings of the Buddha right there. But we have to unwrap that a bit so that we can understand what's going on there. And that is when we first unwrap that one phrase, we, uh, we come to understand the Four Noble Truths. And so this is the very basic introduction. Uh, I know that in some places they think about that the Four Noble Truths is so deep and so profound and so advanced that you almost have to be a soda pine to even understand it. Well, that's quite a catch-22 because the whole thing of the teaching of the Buddha is that he only teaches this one thing, which is these Four Noble Truths, and that's the place that we've got to, got to begin, which actually kind of clears things up because we really do understand the Four Noble Truths from the get-go. We're all almost immediately in the position of being soda pond. It's not that big of a trip. It's only a big trip when it's uh, a catch-22. Right? Yeah. It's almost like everybody is going around with their shoelaces tied together. You know, the left, the shoelace from the left shoe and the right shoe's shoelaces are tied together. Have you ever seen that? Try to walk that way? People will trip and fall all over the place. And the simple thing is, is all we have to do is untie that little knot and then we can walk. Okay. That's basically what we're talking about is, is that it's that easy once we understand what's really going on. But it takes a while for us to figure it out. So the first noble truth, in fact, is there is dukkha. And yet that's something that is just misunderstood all over the place. One example of it being misunderstood is when people say that life is suffering. No, life's not suffering. Or the day is suffering. Or, the, or we're suffering through terrible times. No, the times are not terrible. It's the mind that's terrible. All right? Mm -hmm. so we cannot say that life is suffering. No. Um, life is what we make of it. Another way of saying that, just to make a point of it, is that people say that life sucks. You've probably heard that. Life sucks. Well, life sucks because we're sucking on things. If we would stop sucking on things, life wouldn't suck. <laughs> and so we have to begin to understand how is it that we are sucking on things because it is sucking that actually causes life to suck. And yet we're confused. We think that life sucks instead of recognizing that sucking sucks. <laughs> and that's where we come to the second noble truth. To begin to understand what dukkha really is, we have to understand how it comes about, how it happens. And the key word, the most operative word there is the word cause. The second noble truth is always stated as the cause of suffering. Now, this is something that's more profound than most people get an understanding to. In fact, uh, baby Buddhism or the religion of Buddhism will jump right through there. But the noble stops at that word 
cause and reflects that this is actually the whole teaching of the Buddha in another way is everything happens because of a cause. Now that's inductive reasoning and inductive reasoning means that we induce things because we can see it here, there and here and there and we induce that everywhere we look we will find it and therefore we can further induce that it always happens like that. Okay, and this is what we mean by a cause and an effect that we can see that any time that this happened, it had a cause. And when that cause is removed, it doesn't happen anymore. And that everything is like that. Inductive logic, everything is like that. And the example that the Buddha uses is the example of fire. In the sense that a fire is known by its fuel. A grass fire, a car fire, a house fire, uh, a heart on fire, burning with desire, by the way. And all kinds of fires have a fuel. Do you know of a fire that burns without any fuel? No. No. Well, that's a profound teaching. Because it actually uh, solves many, many problems that people have about what is what, especially in the sense of magical thinking. That a lot of the Buddhist religion, Buddha Sasana, has a lot of magical thinking built into it because they don't keep track of the fact that the Buddha works with causes. That if you do not have a cause for something, it cannot exist. It only exists because of a cause. Therefore, if there is no causality to cause airy-fairy things, then the likelihood is that they don't exist. If we can find the cause, then we can uh, uh, indicate that perhaps they do exist, but without any causality, things don't exist. So now we're looking back to the second noble truth in the sense of saying, okay, the cause of suffering is actually uh, in Mahayana and in simple Buddhism, they will say the cause of suffering is tanha or grasping and clinging. But uh, it's more complicated than that. That in fact, the real cause of suffering is ignorance. If we knew what we were doing at every step of the way, we wouldn't harm ourselves. We only get harmed by what we would uh, like to think of as accident, which means the accident means we didn't see what we were doing. We didn't see it coming. It happened by accident, right? Mm -hmm. So in that regard, the actual real cause of dukkha is ignorance. Yeah. Ignorance. Or worse than that, the real cause of suffering is not ignorance in the sense of just simply not knowing something and know that we don't know it. Because if we know that we don't know something, then we have perhaps an ability to go find out what it is. But if we, in fact, are wrong and we think we know what it is when we, in fact, don't know what it is. An example of that is many people think the cause of suffering is in fact something that it's not. They're delusional. An example of that would be um, a tsunami. 
lot of people suffered from a tsunami. Right, there was one that hit the east, co uh, the west coast of Thailand, uh, December of two thousand and four. But the very interesting thing is, is that all the beachcombers and the dwellers on the beach, they suffered greatly with that tsunami, but the elephants didn't suffer. Why the elephants didn't suffer was because the day before, in the early morning before the tsunami, the elephants got really restless and wanted to get set free, and the elephant trainers knew something was going on and set the elephants free and then followed them. And guess where the elephants went? To high ground. And so all the elephants and all the elephant trainers were safe. They didn't get bothered by that tsunami at all. They were smart. What the elephants knew, I don't know, but the men knew enough to follow the elephants. Everybody else suffered. Why? Because of their ignorance. They did not know, but they thought they knew that everything was okay. This is what we mean by delusional, and that's a silly example that the elephants know when a tsunami is coming, but the humans are not paying attention. I guess that they have big feet and they can feel the rumbling under the earth and know something's going on, and so they head for the hills. But in any case, people are often delusional. In fact, that's what denial is all about. In fact, their friends will know. They'll say, hey, man, don't be angry. He says, I'm not angry. He's denying what's right in front of him. The fact is his fists are clenched. He's yelling. Everybody says that he's angry. And so all the input says that he's angry. And still he doesn't want to be thought of as angry. And therefore he denies that he is angry. So this is the major issue about the suffering and the dukkha. Is, is that he denies that he's in dukkha. He's actually denying how he feels. And when we wake up and take a look, we stop denying so much. And that's basically what the whole teaching then of the Buddha becomes is wake up to understand what dukkha really is. Once you really understand this first noble truth, then you can actually start spending a whole lot of time in the third noble truth where we're free from suffering. What, me worry? I got no problems. Everything is okay. I'm fine right now. Everything is okay. Everything, no worries, no suffering, no problems, nada. Everything is cool. Got it all checked out, all sussed out, and everything is fine. Okay? This is the third noble truth, and it's cool. Not hot. It's satisfying. It's secure. It's comfortable, and it's very, very high quality and noble. But guess what? It's not all of that special because people do get in that state from time to time, but they don't maintain it. But here we're learning to be able to maintain being in that third noble truth, to maintain being cool and, and uh, satisfied, free from worries, free from suffering free from all kinds of stuff. And yet that kind of state has become sort of exalted in the uh, Buddha Sasana. They put the Buddha way, way up there, right? Way high, oh, Mr. Guru, oh, bow respect and all of that. Oh, please help me, please help me, please fix me, right? And all the Buddha can do is say, hey man, chill out. 
cool off. No place to go, nothing to do. And so we have to be able to see the, the Buddha as not some exalted character, but rather as a dear friend that happened to have figured something out that's very useful, very valuable. Mm -hmm. And when we apply what the Buddha says, then we're just like he is, <clears throat> but we still pay respect and homage to him because he figured out something I couldn't figure out. Yeah. But there's still that whole cool space of everything's okay, everything is fine, relaxed, and worry-free. But most people don't spend their time that way. They spend their time uptight, miserable, unhappy, worried, want things they don't have, restless, bored, and afraid. So you can see that's quite a difference in, in this. That's first noble truth stuff, as opposed to the third noble truth. Everything's all right. No problems. No worries. Well, how can we move from one place to the second? The answer is that the Buddha gives a method or a path to do that. The Eightfold Noble Path is what it's called. Unfortunately, that uh, for Westerners becomes confusing. They think of it as a path. But a much better way of looking at it is it is a method, not a path. Why? Because there is no path to this present moment. Here you are. But we need to apply a method to here you are, happy, peaceful, content, and the third noble truth. And so it's something that we apply immediately rather than over a long period of time. But if we keep applying it immediately, we get better and better at it and more skilled. And so the development actually is in a skill development of doing the same thing over and over and over again, right from the very beginning. I have had, in fact, one encounter of someone who says that he's been meditating for 50 years and he knows what advanced meditation is all about and how dare I say something like that the job that he has to do is the same job that he had to do 50 years ago. That was just merely to clean out the mind. And here, 50 years out of, I guess, not cleaning out the mind, he is there angry. Yeah. He wasn't cleaning out the mind 50 years on. Isn't that interesting how people will practice something they call meditation and they don't, in fact, do the job that needs to be done, which is basically to clean out the mind. And so let's look at how we do that with the Eightfold Noble Path. The first part is this uh, right view. And one of the things about right view is to be able to see what is right view and what is not right view. And the next time you call or soon, we'll go into it in great depths. But right now we'll talk about right view uh, only in the sense that uh, we have an internal mechanism inside that is often called conscience. Let your conscience be your guide, which basically what they're saying is don't go by your feelings, but go by what you know is uh, Dukkha versus Dukkha Naroda, for you to automatically know what is right and what is wrong. 
And this is a quality of the Eightfold Noble Path. That's why it's called a noble right view is because uh, ordinary right view knows enough to stay out of some kind of dukkha, but it winds up still ripening and clinging. And we'll talk more about that. But there is a noble right view. And that noble right view then is, is that am what I'm doing right now noble or not? Mm -hmm. And what I'm doing right now, is this appropriate? Is this wholesome? Or is it hindering me from being wholesome? This is one's right view. Okay. Okay. And, uh, and then the next one is one's right sati, to remember, to look at what one's right view is right now. Mm -hmm. That's why this is so important, is to remember to look. It doesn't matter what skills you've got developed. If you don't remember to apply those skills, what good are they? Yeah. Ah, but if you develop the skills of the Eightfold Noble Method, or the Eightfold Noble Path, then we can apply that sati and the other skills, and they work together to build up as skills. Now, the third skill is the skill of right effort. And one's right effort is then to change one's wrong view into right view and to also to change one's wrong thinking and wrong thought into right thinking and right thought. That's one's right effort. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people practicing meditation miss that one. They think that one's right effort is merely to note the dukkha or to note the unwholesome in the mind, perhaps noting it as unwholesome, but they don't take the effort that it takes to remove it from the mind. This is really an important one that will harp on so much over time, but I wanted to make sure that we introduce that whole point is, is that wholesome thoughts are better than unwholesome thoughts. And the very first training is to change our thoughts from unwholesome thoughts to wholesome thoughts. There is a little bit more to right effort with that also. And that, I would say, would be to take the effort to start breathing correctly. We want to start to actually seize the breath or to take control over it. Meditation methods that talk about only noticing or monitoring or noting the breath allows the mind to wander away back into hindrances very easily. But if we actually seize the breath and control it, then that actually lights up the frontal cortex of the mind where the breathing is normally controlled by the reptilian feeling part of the brain back in the back here. Mm -hmm. So... When we begin to control the breathing, several magnificent things happen. One is, is that we begin to oxygenate the body and feel more awake, alert, alive, full of energy, pep, vigor, vim, all of that kind of stuff, ready to go. The next point is, is that by breathing out long, we also uh, exhaust a lot of pollutions that were in the blood. And the biggest example is carbon dioxide. 
that when we're not breathing well, then carbon dioxide builds up in the system. But when we're intentionally breathing out long, then we're actually purifying the blood, which then means that we can now burn brain fuel a whole lot better. We get uh, firing on all cylinders, so to speak, because we've got good air intake. Okay. All right. So now we understand that right effort has two qualities. One is to get the breathing going, and the other one is to change the thoughts that are in the mind from unwholesome thoughts to wholesome thoughts. Once we get to the point of being able to have one wholesome thought after another wholesome thought after another wholesome thought, one wholesome thought in a line after another after another, now the work gets a whole lot easier. That's not so much right effort anymore. That actually learning to maintain deep, easy breathing is a whole lot easier than developing it to keep remembering, oh, I'm not breathing well, let me start breathing well. Let me start taking deep breaths and uh, out breaths that exhaust. And let's uh, see that as we progress, then things get easier and easier. That when the mind is full of unwholesome thoughts, when the mind is full of desire, burning with desire, then that's unliberating. That's tying us down. We are actually a prisoner to the things we want. Got to have. But when we let go of those things and just uh, have only wholesome thoughts, then we can have thoughts that are liberating, thoughts that are wholesome, thoughts that are um, uh, help brighten and gladden the mind. And so uh, this is also one's right effort of taking wholesome thoughts means to gladden the mind or to perk the mind up. So we can say things like, wow, this is nice. Wow, I really like this breath. This is a good one. Boy, this feels so relaxing. I really like what's going on here. So we begin to talk ourselves into feeling really good. Yeah. And talking ourselves into feeling really good means that now we're moving out of being anxious and afraid into being satisfied, content, and... Uh, uh, let us say free from fear uh, secure safe because we, we can have wholesome thoughts everything is safe here everything is okay no problems why should I feel uptight and anxious and afraid about something because whatever it is is definitely either way in the past off in the future someplace and who knows what's going to happen in the future and so we begin to have nurturing thoughts about what's happening right now. As we breathe in, we have nurturing thoughts about, isn't this nice? Isn't this easy? As we breathe out, we begin to feel safe and secure and relaxed. When we practice like this for a long period of time, <laughs> sorry, what's my... Uh, my <laughs> when we practice like this over a longer period of time, we begin to build up success. This success is what we call sada, so that you know that, hey, 
I can, in fact, clean my mind out. Hey, I can, in fact, keep my thoughts in line. Hey, I can, in fact, have only wholesome thoughts, one after another after another. I do not have to have the mind in uh, the garbage bin or ripping things off or uh, stealing furniture or anything like this. I can just have wholesome thoughts of everything is all right right now. By doing that over and over again, now we develop an additional feature of the Eightfold Noble Method or the Eightfold Noble Path, and that's one's right attitude. <clears throat> we begin to develop the attitude that, hey, I can do this. Hey, I can be free from suffering. Hey, I can relax. I know how to do it now. And as we put these four features together, that brings the mind into a state of unification, of pleasure, of knowing that I'm successful at this practice. Okay, so let me give you an, an analogy. The analogy comes from a sutta, number 19. This is the Buddha's story when he's talking about wholesome thoughts and unwholesome thoughts. He likens it to a cow herd that has to keep the cows in line while it's going down a path that is populated. So it has children that the cows could step on, it's got food stalls, and the cow herd has to make sure that the cows are uh, going where they belong. If a cow starts to wander off, may step on a child or whatever, now the cow herd has to whack that cow to get him in line. But the cow herd feels really good because he has now made his journey with the cows successful and secure. He's actually able to keep the cows out of danger, which is exactly the same thing as keeping the mind out of unwholesome thoughts. But once the cow herd gets the cows out into the pasture, where they can eat the stubble and the, and the husk of the rice and whatever there. Now he can relax even more so that the effort becomes easier because he knows that the cows are always going to be wholesome or the thoughts are going to be wholesome. So long as the cows are there, they're okay. If one of them starts to wander away, then we want to stop it. So that means that it's easy going. The cow herd does not have to stand right there with the cows. He can actually go sit under a tree and just kind of mindfully watch them. Take it easy. Relax. Okay, so this is the way that we begin to practice is going from one state of, of, of relaxation to a lower state of relaxation to more relaxation to more relaxation. That's the whole practice of the path is going from one level of dukkha of dissatisfaction into a level of satisfaction, but now we can see that level of satisfaction can be improved upon by doing this, this agitating. And so we come down to this level of satisfaction. And now we, at that level of satisfaction, we see the things that are still a little bit disruptive and a little bit unpeaceful, and so we eliminate those things, and now we go down to a really deep level of, of satisfaction, a deep level of easygoing peace and everything is all right mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so that's the story that we start with is is that the cow herd has to first off start guarding these cows to make sure that they're wholesome and then the next story is is that he's got to make sure that the cows are there uh grazing 
But once he recognizes that they are there grazing, that they're not wandering off, now he can really relax. He doesn't even have to watch them every moment. He can just gaze over there to make sure, and then he can come back and relax for a while. Then he will take another gaze. And so this is the way the mind begins to work, is, is that so long as we know that every thought is wholesome, we can begin to put some space and some gaps in those thoughts. Yeah. Starts to put some space, and space is even more relaxing than the, uh, the wholesome thoughts. But unwholesome thoughts are definitely not relaxing. And so your job then is to start practicing to whack those cows, to whack those unwholesome thoughts so that you can come back and have only wholesome thoughts, which we also refer to as gladdening the mind. And also at that point in time, you'll want to take a deep breath. That deep breath will be relaxing also. Take a deep breath. And so this is how sati works. Sati, we remember, oh, take a look at the mind, what it's doing. Oh, it's unwholesome. Oh, throw that thought out and have a wholesome thought. Take a deep breath and relax and everything is good again. And the whole practice of the Buddha is that easy, that fast. But we have to practice that over and over again until eventually those thoughts become almost consistently wholesome. And then the, then the cows will wander away, and now the cow herd's got to go get them again and round them up again and get them out of danger again. And that will happen over and over again. And so there will be times when the mind does get disturbed. Do we remember to keep it in line or not? Are we going to make those cows, those thoughts, step in line? Mm-hmm. So this is the way of practice. This is also the actual practice of Anapanasati, that we practice the Eightfold Noble Path to practice Anapanasati. But we practice then Anapanasati, or mindfulness of breathing, which we've been talking about, gladdening mind, investigating, feeling good, feeling relaxed. These are all aspects of Anapanasati. And we practice that then for the fulfillment of the four foundations of mindfulness. But we do that for the fulfillment then of the Sambhujana, which is nothing but the fulfillment of the Eightfold Noble Path. And so all of this stuff kind of runs in circles around it. And so this mindfulness of breathing, or uh, Anapanasati, in fact, look at the Sati. We have the Satipatthana, we have Anapanasati, we have uh, um, sati as um, Aryan, uh, sama area samati, part of the Eightfold Noble Path, and it's also uh, the first item on the Sambhojana, unremitting sati. Keep coming back to the present moment over and over again to check those cows. You have to, cow herd has to keep waking up from time to time. Check those cows. Are they all in order? Are they all in line? Or do I have to go whack one? Mm-hmm. So we so sati is the foundation of all of these practices. Yes. To wake up, to wake up and to look, to wake up and apply the eightfold noble path, which means to uh, investigate the view, to view, to look. Is this wholesome? Is it not wholesome? So that's the whole practice. 
Mm-hmm. When and where and how you do that is not so important. But it's better if we get into seclusion, get ourselves away from other people so that we don't have to deal with those distractions. We only have to deal with the distractions that we are manufacturing in our own mind. The unhold- In other words, we don't have to deal with the unwholesomeness of the world. We only have to deal with the unwholesomeness of the world that we brought in with us when we went into seclusion. And now, by being in seclusion, we can begin to guard the mind to make sure that every thought is wholesome. And if it's not wholesome, to throw it out, the Buddha would use the phrase, "Ah, I see you, Mara. Ah, I see you, unwholesome thought. Never mind, I'm going, I'm going to feel good without it. I do not have to follow that thought. I do not have to feel that way. And so this is the beginning of the practice, but uh, it's actually the whole show. Except that later we get really skilled at it. We get really, really skilled at having only wholesome thoughts or none at all. Have gaps between the thoughts. Okay. Okay. So does that give you enough uh, to get started on the practice? Because this is practice. It's a practice of skills to be developed. You have to remember over and over again to keep remembering, to remember, to remember, to remember. And then remember to look, to apply. What's the view? How do I see things? Is this wholesome or is it not wholesome? And then the right effort it takes to change the unwholesome into the wholesome and to get the body to start breathing correctly. Long, deep, easy breath in, long, deep, easy breath out. And that's all we need to do. And now we've got ourselves into a state of sukha. Now we're not in sukha. We're in sukha. That's all it takes. You can do that the first time you take a deep breath. Meditators, beginners, luck. Or the Zen call it beginner's mind. Just keep starting over again. Uh, Goenka has the phrase, never mind, start again. Mm-hmm. Whenever we remember, that's the sati, to wake up, to remember. Yeah. I right, right view. Remove the unwholesome thoughts and take a deep breath and have wholesome thoughts. And that's all we need to practice over and over again until pretty soon we have more or less wholesome thoughts over and over, one after another. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Okay, so next time we'll talk about what are wholesome and what are not wholesome thoughts, but for right now you can use, let your conscience be your guide. Mm -hmm. Figure out what is wholesome and what is not wholesome. But thoughts about the past, not so wholesome. Thoughts about the future, not so wholesome. Thoughts about right now, likely to be wholesome. Yes. That's the thought is, I feel like shit right now, and that's not particularly wholesome. (laughs) (laughs) But a wholesome thought instead would be, let me take a deep breath, and I can relax, I can relax. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right, so... Um, how often to practice, I would recommend that you do this several times a day 
and not do it for long periods of time because over time the uh, the attention span, the focus wanes. And so we don't need to practice for 40 minutes or an hour or whatnot like that, especially in the beginning, that I would say, in fact, that the, the limit would be 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And perhaps even better would be to spend an hour a day, four times a day for 15 minutes. Okay. Keep practicing over and over again until you begin to, uh, in between those 15-minute sitting sessions, you also begin to remember to have wholesome thoughts. Mm -hmm. Very good. (laughs) So you start building up sati over and over and over again so that you can remember more and more often to have only wholesome thoughts. Okay. Okay. So, when are you going to call again? Um, let's see. I've maybe, well, today's Wednesday, so um, maybe we'll see on the, on the weekend, maybe. Okay, yeah. yeah. Twice a week is good. Yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah so or, we, can, we can talk about twice a week for a while. Yeah. Or, I don't know. If, uh, whatever suits you better, it's, uh, I can. We already it. established it. Why are you picking yeah. it apart now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let's do it. All right. So mm-hmm. we'll see you in, in uh, about twice a week is really good. I think that that really helps students a lot to mm-hmm. check in twice a week, to go a little bit deeper into the Dhamma and more understanding each time. Okay. All right, so go practice. Enjoy yourself. Thank you. Have wholesome thoughts. Thank you very much. Take it easy on yourself. Yes. <laughs> okay, we'll see you. Bye-bye. Okay, Thank bye-bye. you. Bye-bye.